to start with my childhood. I used to go to a municipal school for primary education. It was limited to primary. So for my middle school, I shifted to an English medium school, which had many Anglo-Indians. And this was in the 1960s, shortly after India's independence. So the Anglo-Indians still identified with the British. They declared themselves superior. And they were bigger because they were older, because they had failed repeatedly. So they ganged up and they used to bully other children. And this was my first taste of the remnants of colonialism. To survive, I had to physically fight with many of them. So my first fight was with a much bigger boy. I was 10. He was perhaps 14 or 15. And his family and friends were standing around, waiting to enjoy seeing me beaten up. I was obviously much smaller. So he charged at me, but he was careless. So I sidestepped and hit him, and he slipped and fell. And then he lost his temper. And then he raged, you know, I'll kill you, and charged again. Then I hit him again, and this time he went down. Then his parents suddenly rushed to stop the fight. You horrid boy, why are you beating my little child? So much bigger. And this was my first experience of Western hypocrisy. They were not intervening earlier. They started intervening when he started losing. So this school still taught history from a British text which it proudly declared was superior since it was of British origin. So in class 7, this text taught me that Vasco da Gama discovered India. I was puzzled. In early childhood, I had uh, learned from the Gita, the very first verse, no, Dharma Kshetre, Kuru Kshetre, Samaveta, Yuyutsava. So the Mahabharat battle was fought in Kurukshetra. And this was at the beginning of the Kali era, Kali Yug, minus 3102 CE, some 5000 years ago. So if India was discovered only in the 15th century of the Christian era by Vasco, mere 500 years ago, where did Indians live before that? That was the doubt that came to my mind as a child. And where was this Kurukshetra if not near Delhi? Or was that information from the Gita and the Mahabharata false? So I asked my history teacher, where did Indians live before Vasco? Discovered India. So he said Indians lived right here in India. This was even more puzzling. If Indians lived right here in India, what then did Vasco discover? So as a child, I trusted my school text. 
I did not imagine that the text, the superior British text at that, might be deliberately teaching lies. It's not part of my imagination, not part of my word. I thought my understanding was defective. Perhaps a problem with my English. So, I did what I was supposed to do. I tried to save the story by guesswork. So, I guessed Vasco must have discovered the sea route to India. The nagging doubt persisted. Why did the text not say so? And what new navigational techniques enabled the discovery? So my teacher had no answer to my question. And that's how it uh, went on for 33 years. 1998 was the 500th anniversary of Vasco's arrival. And some people wanted to celebrate it. There was a controversy. Why should Indians celebrate Vasco's arrival? So the Indian National Science Academy toned it down. They said, we will have an Indo-Portuguese international conference. To balance matters, it was decided to report on traditional Indian navigation at the Indo-Portuguese international meet. So at that time, a CSIR project was going on, you know, Council of Scientific and Industrial Research. And this project was on traditional navigation. It had been going on for some years. Problem was, there was nothing to report. Despite having spent much money, there was nothing to report. A manuscript had been retrieved. It was the Rahmani of Kunni Kunni Mestri of Kavarati. It had some mysterious Nuri tables. No one understood these tables. What are these tables about? So I was at that time in a CSIR lab, Nistads, involved uh, in a, I was involved in writing my book, Eleven Pictures of Time, which is about science, religion and society. As a mathematician, I was asked to go to the remote Lakshadweep Islands and find out, study their traditional methods of navigation and especially resolve the mystery of these Nuri tables. What are these Nuri tables? So I started with some background reading and I was astounded by what I discovered. So uh, Vasco came to India with the help of an Indian navigator, Kanak, who used this navigational instrument called the Kamal or Rapalagai. Okay, these two pieces of wood and a little string. So I'll tell you more about it as we go along. The rest of the time, Vasco stuck to the coast, to the African coast. So if you see his trajectory you know, from Lisbon to Cape Verde and so on, he kept right along the African coast. And when he reached uh, Melinde, and he was very suspicious of the Africans, but they were being very friendly. And they told him, if you keep going, you will reach the Red Sea, not the land of spices. And so he got the help of this Indian navigator and came from Melinde to Calicut. 
the point is my childhood guess had been completely wrong vasco did not discover the sea route to india the sea route from africa to india was already well known in his time to both indians and africans they kept him for 3 months saying this is not the right season to sail they knew about the monsoon my superior british text hit this fact that vasco came to india with the help of an indian it encouraged mystified children to make the wrong guess what is this discovery maybe discovered something else and that he discovered the sea route but then the next question arose if vasco did not discover the sea route to india then who did and when so a little more reading threw up another surprise alexander's army it had a walkover in egypt and it was a chance victory in persia in persepolis a chance victory they faced their first real fight with a small chieftain puru porus on the indian border and the part which they don't tell that alexander's army was terrified by the indian war elephants and panicked at the thought of 60000 more war elephants ahead in patna and therefore alexander's army mutinied at the border of india and refused to go further so i have some uh, images of this war elephant and how they were used like battle tanks so alexander was forced to turn back but he dreamt of returning to india with a bigger army but how to transport a big army across desert and mountain army needs lot of food where are you going to carry that food where are you going to get it so these deserts and mountains were a natural barrier for coming to india and he wanted to circumvent that and so he thought of using the sea route to india of which he had heard because it was known in his time in fact he sent his general nearchus to find the sea route to india nearchus crept along the coast and managed to reach africa alexandria so the sea route to india was known even in alexander's time romans traded extensively with india and many hoards of roman coins have been found along the western coast there are archaeological finds strabo said that 120 ships sailed annually between india and alexandria pliny complained that trade with india was draining half the wealth of the roman empire in fact the port of lothal existed even in harappan time at least 1000 years before alexander my superior british school text still taught that vasco discovered india and one had to repeat that otherwise they would plunk you that's the rule in the school you have to repeat what the text says whether it makes sense or not so i have this image of lothal here but anyway the sea route to india was known from at least 2500 years before vasco 2500 years why then did my school text credit vasco with the discovery of with its discovery of the sea route or the discovery of india and what exactly did he discover 20 years after my phd i was left groping to understand my middle school text
Eventually, I discovered the real meaning of discovery. From an article by a Native American, Steve Newcomb. The article was titled, 500 Years of Injustice. So he was a Native American and he writes about the uh, arrival of Europeans from the Native American point of view. So I discovered that my problem with discovery was indeed a problem with English, with the English. Pun intended. The word discovery has a little known special meaning in church dogma. If you look at the bull inter cetera and the bull Romanus Pontifex, a bull, by the way, is a church fatwa. On that church dogma, the first Christian to see a piece of land becomes its owner. Notwithstanding its prior ownership by any non-Christian. And uh, one of these uh, so-called Red Indians, Native Americans, he thought he would try out the uh, British system of justice. And he appealed to the Supreme Court, this was our land, give it back to us. They did not have a concept of land ownership. But the US Supreme Court ruled in 1823 that this church dogma was part of US law. It is still part of US law. Nobody has challenged it. And this US law, US inherited its law like India from Britain. Now Britain is a Protestant country and the judge noted that uh, Protestants had accepted the bull and they had sent cabots on voyages of discovery. Therefore, it was part of British law and therefore it ruled that the Red Indians had lost their right to the land in the Americas after being discovered by Christians. This is US law. I'll give you the reference if you like. So the verdict remains unchallenged to this day and that was the superior British system of justice. This evil dogma dehumanizes non-Christians. It carries the claim of Christian superiority to the point that uh, depraved popes openly encouraged genocide of non-Christians. The related bulls, Romanus Pontifex for example, call upon Christians to kill and enslave all non-Christians and praises these as high moral acts. And the resulting genocide is described by Las Casas, who accompanied Columbus on his second voyage. And this book is, of course, well known, a short account of the destruction of the Indies by Las Casas. I have an image of it. As Las Casas described it, the Spanish did not spare even women and children. They split open the wombs of pregnant women and threw young children from cliffs into the sea, saying, Boil there, you offspring of the devil. So as these remarks about the devils show, these were religious hate crimes against humanity, directly encouraged by infallible popes, who hold on to that dogma to this day. The Red Indians, so to say, the Native Americans burn those bulls. Every year they have never been withdrawn. And here are some images of the way people were killed, the brutal way in which they were killed. And... And the first estimate that Las Casas gave, it was 10 million people were brutally killed during the initial genocide. Many more were killed later. And this 10 million figure is already more than the largest estimate of Jews killed by Hitler. So, there should be proportionate condemnation. 
but the concerned popes were never declared criminals against humanity. Instead, they teach morality to children. So while Holocaust denial is a crime, the genocide of native inhabitants is glorified. It is celebrated as Columbus Day in the US and other countries. First time I went to Australia, 1988, they were celebrating the bicentennial of Thomas Cook's discovery of Australia and the resulting genocide of the Australian Aborigines. They couldn't kill the Maoris because the Maoris were warlike. So this was the real meaning of discovery. And children are still indoctrinated into believing that these evil genocides were glorious acts. Because colonial education came as church education, it injects this poisonous church dogma into the minds of young children. And most people never overcome that. It took me so many years, about uh, something like 40 years, to find out uh, what is wrong about my superior school text. And children are still being indoctrinated. And this lesson on the age of discovery is still taught in ICSE syllabus and in African schools today. If you try to correct it, they get horrified for such glorious acts. 50 million Africans were killed. So such genocide glorification ought to be declared a criminal act. And we should instead teach our children to ignore Western hypocrisy about human rights until such time as there is reparation for these crimes. So to summarize, Vasco da Gama did not discover India or the sea route to India. The word discovery relates to a genocidal church dogma which glorified these genocides and declared them as high moral acts and teaches our children accordingly. And the same remark, of course, applies not only to Columbus but also to Thomas Cook's discovery of Australia. Now, I would like to make a couple of clarifications. Why didn't a similar genocide follow the discovery of India? There's a reason for that. The reason is that for 260 years after Vasco, Europeans remained militarily very weak compared to Indians. They lacked the superior guns and cannons of the mighty Mughal Empire. There was no match even for the Vijayanagar Empire. Indeed, Vasco fled from its tributary, Calicut, second voyage. He fired at unarmed traders and then ran for his life to Cochin, which was hostile to Calicut. Goa was just thrown to the Portuguese by a disinterested Vijayanagar. It was conquered with inside help. So if you want the details, they are there in my book, 11 Pictures of Time. And 200 years after Vasco, the British were begging for pardon from Aurangzeb. So I have a picture of that. There was this pirate, Avery, and when he attacked a ship returning from Makkah, the British were absolutely petrified, although they were in fortified Bombay, and they offered to make good the financial loss, and the English parliament, it was the English parliament those days, declared them as, um, uh, what, criminals against humanity or something like that. All right, so they were not able to commit genocide, but though they were militarily weak and unable to steal land, they freely stole scientific knowledge from India. 
Knowledge was not guarded by armies. And the Europeans who were poor and barbaric at that time badly needed that superior knowledge for wealth creation. Now, the first mission school was set up by the Roman church in Cochin in 1508, purportedly to teach the local Syrian Christians. But it served as a cover to collect local knowledge with their help. So the Portuguese used the Syrian Christians as a fifth column, the way in which, uh, as in the conquest of Jerusalem during the Crusades, the fifth column inside. So they ferreted out useful knowledge and then later falsely claimed it as their own. So, in my childhood, there used to be a game, I was very fond of this game called Braino, it was a quiz. So, you have a board and then you put something here and something there and the bulb lights up if you have the right answer. So, you would have a question, let us say, who discovered radio? And the answer would be Marconi. So, no one ever mentioned Bose. We didn't even hear about him, we heard about him, but not really in that connection. So, why are all scientific discoveries attributed to Europeans? So this doctrine of discovery was effectively used to justify false claims of scientific discovery. They are non-humans. So whatever is done by non-Christians doesn't count. Look at the first Christian who did it. So all stolen non-Western knowledge was declared to have been discovered by Christians and friends and the friends were the early Greeks as Eusebius said. Or later they were discovered, they were declared to have been discovered by whites or still later by Westerners. It moved from religion, to race, to culture. Depending upon whether false history was written by a church priest or by races or by colonialists. And uh, these false historical claims were the basis of the claims of Christian, white, western superiority. So Kant, for example, will talk about uh, white superiority because they are creative. Blacks are not creative. And Macaulay will talk about Western superiority and so on. And this is there in my book, Is Science Western in Origin? So if you have not seen it, you ought to see it. Uh, okay, so let us take uh, one small example, which is the discovery of the round earth. So in my childhood, I learned that uh, Columbus discovered that the earth is round. I had a little doubt. So those days, these stories of cowboys and Indians, red Indians, were very widespread. And the cowboys were always the heroes, they were glorified, and the Indians were always the villains, demonized, and the most, uh, I mean, the best kind of characterization you might have is in Mark Twain, the best depiction. As an Indian, I was a bit troubled. Why are they always making them villains? So I asked, why are Red Indians called Indians? Some confusion somewhere. And the answer that I got was that Columbus made a mistake. When he reached the Americas, he thought he had reached India. Now, how did Columbus make such a foolish mistake? And the answer is, which I learnt later, because he grossly underestimated the size of the earth by 40%. So when he reached Cuba, 
he wrote in his logbook that he was off the coast of Cathay and so on. And then sometime later he discovered that he was wrong and said the instrument is broken. Nothing much to break in the instrument. It has just got one movable part. It is a plumb line. So why did he underestimate the size of the earth? Perhaps he underestimated it to get funds for his project of going west to reach east. But there is another problem. Only some elementary mathematics is needed to find the size of the earth. First year undergraduate students of my course on decolonized history and philosophy of science could easily do it. And it is now included in my forthcoming text, geometry text for class 9 students on Raju Ganit. So I have an image here of my students whom I took on a trip to measure the size of the earth and they made mistakes but that's no problem, they learned the principle, it's very easy. So again the question is, why did Columbus make such a foolish mistake? And how come no one could correct it? Okay, he made a mistake, one person can make a mistake, can always happen. But how come it was never corrected? So the answer is, of course, that no one in Europe knew the elementary math needed to calculate the size of the earth. Little later in the 16th century, Jesuits stole high precision Indian trigonometric tables, precise to the 10th decimal place, from Cochin. That's where Vasco had got shelter. And the, well, Thief, I think he should be called a thief and Jesuit general, Christoph Clavius, published them in his own name in 1607. He discovered it. But, published it in his name, but he did not know enough trigonometry to use the stolen trigonometric tables to calculate the size of the earth. You publish things to 10 decimal place precision, you should know trigonometry pretty well. I am sure none of you would be able to calculate uh, trigonometric values to 10 decimal place precision. It is not an easy task. So you have to be well versed in math. I mean, your calculator might be able to do it, but you, if you are asked to do it by hand, you will find it difficult. So he should know that much elementary trigonometry to calculate the size of the earth. He did not. Even Newton, 150 years after Columbus, his first estimate of the size of the earth was off by 25%. And of course, Greeks and Romans and European math, basically it was primitive and it lagged thousands of years behind others. So, it um, annoyed people. See, thousand years before Columbus, the 5th century Aryabhat said, that's in gold, 7, verse 7, that the earth is round like a kadam flower. So, I have an image of a kadam flower. But I think all of you know what a Kadam flower is. So the Bible does say the earth is flat. For example, Daniel 4, 10, 11, or Matthew 4, 8, or Revelation 7, etc. I have these um, quotations on my website for a long time. Guys, to teach about this. But this belief in the flat earth was repeatedly dismissed as a superstition in India. Lalla 
Allacharya, 8th century, says in his chapter on correction of mythical knowledge, Mithya Gyanam Nirakaran. That's in Shikshadivridhid, chapter 20, verse 36. The earth is not flat because far off objects like tall trees cannot be seen at a distance. It's contrary to the Bible. It says you can see the tall things. What Eshwar in the 9th century repeats similar arguments in his book Gol. So, though the West boasts of having discovered science, no contemporary Westerner dared declare that the Bible belief is a superstition. This idea of a round earth was incorporated into everyday practice. Indo-Arabic navigation defines a zam. Zam comes from the Sanskrit yam. Prahar. Dopahar. As the distance, so Zam is defined as the distance from here to the horizon. That is the distance at which a ship, let's say you are on the sea, the distance at which the ship just disappears over the horizon. And this unit of length incorporates an accurate estimate of the size of the earth. Assuming it to be a perfect sphere, it very nearly is, the difference of 20 kilometers between the equatorial and polar radius, a very small difference. Like the Arabic mil, it's approximately 1.8 kilometers, which is one arc minute. And therefore it incorporates, so it is 1 by 21,600 of the earth's circumference. And that gives you a very precise estimate of the circumference of the earth. So the Arabs too knew the correct value of the radius of the earth from at least 600 years before Columbus. Indians used to state their estimates, they were stated much earlier, but they were stated, uh, estimates for the radius of the earth were stated in Yojan. We don't know exactly what a Yojan is. But Al-Biruni, who came in the 11th century to India, used Indian techniques to cross-check. You know what Khalifa al-Mamun did? He sent the team to measure out physically one degree of the arc in the desert. So Al-Biruni cross-checked the estimate of the size of the earth and confirmed it by using the Indian technique. And he stated his figure in Arabic meals. And we know exactly the correspondence between, well, very closely the correspondence between Arabic meals and English miles. And so we know that Al-Biruni's estimate was accurate to within 1% for the local circumference of the earth. So to summarize, Columbus did not discover that the earth is round. He stole knowledge of the round earth from Muslims in Europe. But now that's the critical point. Like many thieves, this is my epistemic test, those who steal fail to understand, often fail to understand. So he stole without understanding. Estimates were there, after all there were, you know, there was uh, Cordoba and so on, there, they were there in Europe, in Muslim part of Europe. So he incorrectly made the earth smaller to suit his aims. And no European could correct him. Because no European then knew enough elementary math to measure the earth's size. And this European error had an important consequence for European navigation. Brahmagup, in the 7th century, in his Brahma's foot Siddhant, it's chapter 11, verse 15-16, he says, Bhu Vyasasya Gyanat Vyartham Deshantaram. Ignorance of the earth's radius, bhuvyas, 
earth radius, Agyanat. Ignorance of the earth's radius makes longitude calculations futile, Vyartham Deshantaram. Therefore, Europeans had a major problem with longitude because they didn't know the right size of the earth. But this was a navigational problem peculiar to Europe. It was not there among others. So much has been made about it, you know, longitude and the clock. So Europeans alone had the wrong size of the earth. I'd like to add a couple of footnotes. Picard determined the size of the earth in 1671, but it was not accepted by European navigators. Because Portugal had banned the use of globes about ships in 1500, since they led to navigational disasters. So you can, if you're telling the story in retrospect, you can say, oh, look, he found out, but it wasn't really accepted. And then there is the story of Eratosthenes. He determined the size of the earth. It's the usual Western historical bunker. The real story of Eratosthenes, the origin, find the source. What's the original source? Why don't they any time state it? Because the source is from 19th century source. It's nothing coming from Alexandria or from early Greeks or... Not even as early as Archimedes from the 16th century, 19th century. So Egyptians, of course, knew the size of the earth and whether or not it is incorporated in the pyramids is another story. So let me summarize. Vasco da Gama did not discover, the, discover India or the sea route to India in the ordinary sense of the word discovery. And if you use it like, uh, you know, Yudhishthir will say that, uh, you know, it is... Ashwatthama is dead, no? Ashwatthama, the elephant. So you are using the uh, ordinary sense to deceive somebody else. And uh, the word discovery actually relates to a church dogma which morally and legally justifies the genocide of Native Americans, Native Australians and so on, as high acts of Christian virtue. It has never been retracted. And since our colonial education came to us as church education, it aims to indoctrinate children into glorifying this genocide by talking of the age of discovery from childhood, when children don't suspect. So, of course, Columbus did not discover that the earth is round. This was known from long before. He made the earth smaller, very much smaller. And no European then knew the elementary mathematics needed to arrive at the correct figure. So, let me end the story with a moral that instead of accepting colonial church education which glorifies the colonizer as superior, we should critically re-examine all colonial education. That is my simple demand. I don't say that you accept this or accept that. I say that you must critically re-examine it and that is in itself, uh, I think, fatal to uh, this claim. Okay, so to summarize the first part, Europeans did not discover India, but they discovered much knowledge in India. And on the doctrine of discovery, they appropriated this scientific knowledge as their own discoveries. The way they had earlier appropriated knowledge in Arabic texts, attributing the authorship of those texts to some fantasy early Greeks. Later, they used this false history of scientific discovery to claim that they were superior. So, In fact, when Vasco came to India, Europeans were poor and ignorant barbarians. And their dreams of wealth depended upon overseas trade or piracy. This presupposed a good technique of navigation, which they then lacked. 
Now, why is the European navigational problem important to us today? Why should we worry about it? So, they had some difficulty. Because it was in this context that the calculus was stolen from India. I think that is very important. It was stolen from India and later declared to have been discovered by Newton and Leibniz. So, if we understand this process of theft and then claiming a discovery, then it tells us a very important thing that the West may have got the stolen calculus wrong. This is, I mean, the way it got the size of the earth wrong. But colonial education declared that wrong calculus as superior. And that is the calculus we teach today. And this is what effectively I am campaigning about. But it is hard for people to understand. This is much easier. So the calculus we are teaching today may be an inferior version of the calculus we originally developed. For we never compared the two. You know of any comparison? And we almost cannot compare the two today. Because our education makes it impossible for us to compare. First, the calculus is not taught properly. Just now I was talking to some lady. Have you studied real numbers? No. Have you studied real numbers? Have you studied set theory? No. So, it is not taught properly. We teach about real numbers in our school texts. But, they are taught belief. They are taught faith in real numbers, not knowledge of real numbers, of formal real numbers. Even all those fat calculus texts, they don't teach knowledge of real numbers. And if a person doesn't have knowledge, what can he do? He is forced to guess and he is forced to rely on authority. And we are taught that Western certification is the ultimate test of validity. So in any case, people are not able to apply their mind because they don't have the knowledge. And they look for certificates. And we forgot the calculus that we originally had. Nobody knows about it. They don't even know whether it was calculus. So that I think is a major problem. It's a major problem of education because our education in mathematics and science is centrally dependent on that. So I want to develop an understanding of this process. And since people don't understand calculus, they may understand this easier story of navigation. So let's see what happened with British navigation, well, European navigation. So longitude was not the only navigational problems that Europeans had. Vasco did not know how to determine even latitude. So recall that Kanak, an Indian navigator, brought him from Africa to India. And Vasco foolishly recorded that... The pilot was telling the distance by his teeth. You see, this instrument held between the teeth. And the word for uh, the pole star in Arabic Malayalam, maybe some dialect of Tamil, is cow. Which means pole star, but also means teeth. And this is held between the teeth. When I want to measure the angular altitude ele elevation of the pole star, I hold it like that. And the bottom part is aligned to the horizon and the top part is aligned to the pole star. And once I have the angular elevation of the pole star, I know my latitude. 
So Vasco's confusion, Pilate was telling the distance by his teeth. And he carried a Kamal back, copy of the Kamal back with him. But you see, the feature of the Kamal, I mean, Vasco did not understand it. If you look at the knots on this Kamal, I don't know whether you can see them, I'll give you a diagram shortly. So the knots are not equidistant, as they would be in a linear scale. They mark a harmonic scale, like, a, like the holes on a flute. But Vasco said he would have the instrument graduated in inches. Inches are a linear measure in a scale, no? equidistant. So he confounded a harmonic scale with a linear one. Second problem is that to determine latitude in daytime, the pole star is not visible in daytime. It may not be visible if you are at very low latitudes or if you are in the southern hemisphere. So you measure the solar altitude at noon. But by measurement of solar altitude at noon, you can determine your latitude only if you know the solar declination. So the declination is the angle that the sun makes with the equatorial plane. So this is pointed out by the 7th century Lagu Bhaskarya, for example. And if you see this diagram, in the northern hemisphere, if you know the declination and you know the solar altitude at any particular time, then you look at, uh, subtract the altitude from 90 degrees, add it to the declination and you will get your latitude. It's a simple process. But you require knowledge of declination. And that requires at least a good calendar. Make a guess, an estimate, which accurately identifies the equinox and the number of days elapsed since equinox. So if the sun is directly overhead at noon and it is summer solstice, then in the northern hemisphere one is on the Tropic of Cancer. But if it is equinox, then one is on the equator. So just by observation you can't tell, you need also a calendar, you need to know whether it's equinox or solstice. But as I have explained in the tale of two calendars, the Julian calendar was inferior, it did not determine the equinox correctly. Just because, see, why was it inferior? Because Greeks, Romans and Europeans did not understand elementary arithmetic fractions. There was no way to represent fractions in your early Greek and uh, Roman numerals. And this robust non-textual evidence of the bad calendar is far superior to wild tales of Greek mathematical achievement wrongly based on excessively late texts. So even the Gregorian reform of 1582 is stated using a confusing system of leap years and not a precise fraction for the duration of the tropical year. So Clavius introduced fractions in the Jesuit syllabus only in 1575 based on Indian arithmetic texts. Now Fibonacci was a few centuries earlier. That hardly makes a difference because uh, I mean, this is uh, you know, backward uh, white Europeans discovered elementary fractions 3,000 years after black Egyptians. I pointed that out. My article was censored. People in South Africa got enraged. How could we have been 3,000 years behind black Egyptians? But it's a fact that Amos, the scribe, was teaching fractions in the Rhine papyrus from 3,500 years ago. So here is an image of the eye of Horus. 
hora time same word for it that we have now people assign all sorts of religious significance to it it looks like some religious painting but actually it's a depiction of fractions 1 by half 1 by 4 1 by 64 1 by 16 1 by 32 and these are fractions they are part of a geometric series which you can see is converging i won't go into that so recall that although europeans stole calendrical knowledge from india they did not immediately understand it what is the evidence protestant europe accepted the gregorian calendar reforms only in 1752 they did not accept it immediately so after newton's death though it was very quick to accept the doctrine of discovery so nobody could do it themselves they did not know also if you know the latitude difference from the point of departure and the course angle supposing i'm going along a fixed course at least for some period of time say i have set the course by a compass or set it by a stellar rem line then you can calculate the longitude difference from the point of departure by solving the navigational triangle and so you can get your distances provided you know the size of the earth accurately so here is the uh, uh, navigational triangle if you know the course angle and you know the difference of uh, latitude you can calculate the difference of longitude apart from the problem of uh, latitude and longitude there was a peculiar problem called loxodromes and this was peculiar to european navigation which used plane charts so european navigators they used the magnetic compass they had obtained from muslims in spain they moved in a fixed direction set by the compass or by an overhead stellar rem lines if you have two stars look at the straight line joining those and you move in that direction this method was all right for small seas like the mediterranean it failed across big ocean so moving in one direction does not result in a straight line our ncert text class 6 geometry text still wrongly teaches that you move in one direction you get a straight line you want you get a curved line on the surface of the earth always results in a curved line and that's a loxodrome loxos means curved so it's a curved line which is either a circle if you're moving in cardinal directions or a logarithmic spiral spiraling towards the poles so here is a loxodrome so therefore european navigators needed a map which shows loxodromes as straight lines if you set a course like that you should be shown as a straight line on the map so you have a curved line which is being projected onto a straight line such a map was known in china needham has shown a copy but to make it required accurate trigonometric values a table of seconds and this was an obsession with 16th century european navigational theorists and this technique was so to say independently rediscovered by mercator in the 16th century and goes in his name today and the source of his trigonometric values is unknown he was arrested by the inquisition he hid his sources obviously because they were not christian so even though accurate trigonometric values were known to be available in cochin i already told you about clavius published them and simon stevin was a dutch navigational theorist he used aryabhat's sine values so this is the process by which uh, 
Europeans, the talk of discovery, they discovered a whole lot of knowledge which they declared as their own. And uh, we should remember that this process of stealing knowledge and declaring it as their discovery or independent rediscovery continues to this day. Those colonial processes have not stopped. Uh, let me just give one example. I spotted Einstein's error and corrected it. This was published in my 1994 book by Springer, widely distributed. It was publicized after my 2003 book by Sage. But then, in 2005, my Einstein correction was independently rediscovered by the world's leading mathematician. In his Einstein centenary lecture of 2005, and my Einstein correction was renamed as Atiyah's Hypothesis. Atiyah is the president of the Royal Society. But the hypothesis part, calling it an hypothesis is an error. Shows lack of understanding. No hypothesis is needed. I didn't make any. After the theft was caught, my prior work was patronizingly acknowledged in the notices of the American Mathematical Society. I mean, on superior Western ethics, you can keep popping. Only when you are caught, then you should acknowledge. That's all right. So here is the acknowledgement in the uh, notices of the American Mathematical Society in 2007. Acknowledging my published work. Now, if they don't acknowledge, then it doesn't exist. Now I want to get to the uh, critical aspect, which is colonial education. This process of discovery continues because we still have a colonial hangover. How come we have a colonial hangover for such a long period after independence? There is some problem. And the story is also not complete. If you remember, I started with the mystery of the Nuri tables. That's why I went to the Lakshadweep Islands. So who or what was that Arabic sounding Nuri? You know that song, Nuri, <laughs> something like that, if you recollect. So this mystery I resolved very quickly at the Kavarati Public Library just glancing through it and serendipitously I resolved the mystery. The tables were taken from a British sailing manual written by one Captain James Norrie. And the book was issued to uh, Kunni Kunni Mestri and I have the issue card. They were tables of the declination of the sun. So the idea of was available long ago in Indian tradition, the source had changed. The Rahmani was using a colonial source. It was not an indigenous source at all. So the question is, how and when did this switch take place? And I discovered that in 1923, a British officer, Ellis, toured the island. He noticed that the children were not attending the colonial school at Amini. So to get them interested, he commissioned a Malayalam text on British navigation for children in Lakshadweep. The text was published in 1938, it's called Navik Shastram. And since then, the islanders started using the British technique of navigation. Once it was introduced in school, they used that and they forgot. They just assumed that the British text was superior. What about their traditional navigational instrument, this Kamal? Due to colonial education, the tradition was quickly lost. 
So just as the Indian way of doing calculus was lost with colonial education. Until I discovered after 1998 that it was calculus and not merely infinite series. People still don't understand that. So I talked to the oldest people in the Lakshadweep Islands, maybe about 70. They recalled seeing their fathers and grandfathers using this. But nobody could explain how this is constructed. If you understand it, you should be able to construct it. So I toured all the islands and I spoke to the most knowledgeable navigators. So one of them just took the piece in his mouth and raised the knots as if he is doing some finger measurement. Absurdity. One divided the string into eight equal parts, but he was unable to explain how five more equal parts would be added, which he thought were needed for Kavarati at a lower latitude. One thought the instrument was used to measure the speed in knots. What the British used to do is to measure speed in knots by throwing a log overboard and maintaining a log book. Kazi Siraj Koya referred to the book. He said there is a book in Arabic Malayalam, but uh, nobody could translate the technical terms. Finally, Mr. Abu Bakr of Kavarati supplied a physical copy of his father's Kamal, which is this one. He had preserved it. But he did not know how to construct it. He copied it out, very accurately measured it with a vernier caliper, measured the whole thing, distances and so on. So I had to figure out the construction of the Kamal myself. See, it has two pieces, not one piece. It's very important, it has two pieces. The two pieces are connected. So each piece is a Kamal in itself. Each one of them works as an instrument. And each one has uh, knots in harmonic proportion. So basically it's an instrument to measure real life angles. They don't teach you that in geometry. They give you a protractor and you, know, you can only measure angles in paper. This allows you to measure real life angles accurately. And specifically, the angular elevation of the pole star, designed like that. So you can measure angles either by finger measurements. You can take two fingers, three fingers, whatever, block off the portion between um, the horizon and the pole star. So that would increase like this. Or you can uh, uh, use the Kamal. So here is a diagram of the Kamal showing its uh, exact measurement of both the pieces and the knots. So I was told that the British had documented the Kamal. James Princeps had watched the Kamal being constructed. And he discovered that it's in, he understood that the knots are in harmonic proportion, unlike Vasco. But Princeps was obsessed by asserting his superiority. And belittling the Kamal as primitive and lacking in ingenuity. Lowe's is even more lacking in ingenuity. But it was Princeps who lacked the ingenuity to understand the instrument. Or his brain was addled with colonial hubris. He did not apply elementary common sense. And anthropologists since then have just accepted his authority. See, if you construct the Kamal, the scale associated with this instrument, then each knot has a poor accuracy. It's 55 miles. Smaller piece, it is 189 miles. Each knot. 
So that is poor precision. With that kind of precision, how do you get to a small island, coral island, like the Lakshadweep Island, there are just a few kilometers across, you know, two kilometers by four kilometers, that sort of thing. How do you navigate to such a small island? So he did not ask. Princeps was just drunk with his notion of superiority and he did not have the common sense to ask this question. And unfortunately, our anthropologists did not have that either. So, James Norrie of the Nuri Tables fame, writing in the 19th century, recognizes that it's a very difficult feat to navigate to small islands. Then the open sea, how do you get to a small island? And he recommends complex maneuvers. Basically, he says, run into the latitude, then go east-west. But, for that you need a tool for precise latitude determination. And that precise latitude determination can be done with the Kamal, which is very much more accurate than appears at first sight. So, those two pieces are, happen to be in golden ratio. It's about 8 by 5. And... Uh, then I figured out that you can apply the two-scale principle, which is known as the Vernier principle. You must have studied the Vernier calipers, but for linear scales, this also applies to harmonic scales, the harmonic scales. So if I am measuring something and something comes out in between two knots, how do I measure the distance there? So that you measure by using the two scales together, it's the same principle that works with the Vernier principle. It also works with harmonic scales. I worked out the theory in my book, Cultural Foundations of Mathematics. So, this can also be applied to for harmonic interpolation. So, when the thing comes between two knots, you can still measure it using both the things and you can measure it very accurately. Of course, the uh, attribution to Vernier is false. It was known to Arabs, it was known to Pedro Nunez long before him. The point is that using both pieces, using the two scales together, increases the precision of Kamal by a factor of five. So, at the lower end, near Lakshadweep, it has an accuracy of 11 miles. That is what you need because then the island you are navigating to is within sight. It is less than the distance from here to the horizon. So, it can actually be used to navigate to small coral islands. It has an overall range of 1500 miles north-south, a huge range. So, it is a remarkable instrument. The West never understood because of its obsession to keep asserting its superiority. Alright, what is our concern? Our concern is to look at the consequences of colonial education for the islanders. So they got colonial education, they lost their traditional techniques. They replaced it with Navik Shastram and Nuri tables. That's the book taught them. And they believed the British tale of superiority. They did not check. They should have checked. They should have been critical. They never critically compared the two methods. They just accepted that British method and colonial method as superior. Just as we accepted the inferior Gregorian calendar without critical appraisal. Now, this colonial education built in dependency. Okay. For example, when you use the Gregorian calendar, you must ritually recite the myth of Jesus. So, because of colonial education, the islanders needed to use the sextant or the kaman as they call it. It is made of steel. They don't produce steel. Small coral islands. So, they had to purchase this instrument at great cost from far off Bombay. 
and because they could not afford, what they could afford was inferior and had a lower accuracy, only about one degree compared to the Kamal. Since it could not be made locally, they became dependent for their livelihood on colonial technology and colonial knowledge, Nuri tables, etc. So they became consumers of knowledge instead of producers of knowledge. So they became slavishly colonized. So let me go over the story once more. The Europeans came to India as ignorant and weak barbarians. They stole scientific knowledge, the mass theft of knowledge, and later falsely claimed to have discovered it. This epistemicide, the grabbing of knowledge and erasure of the traditional source, was on the same genocidal church dogma of discovery that was used to grab land in Americas and Australia. And these falsehoods about discovery were then used to boast that Europeans are superior. And what did Macaulay do? He used that false boast of superiority to trick us into accepting superior colonial education without examination. And that was actually, that was Macaulay's plan, that it was church education designed to indoctrinate and create loyal missionary mentality or a slave mentality. And what was our mistake? We have been continuing even after independence for so long that we never critically checked that claim of superiority or those false stories of discovery. We should do so at least now. And the problem, as I said, it's very hard to do so because we lost our traditions in many cases. So, if we check, it may be that the indigenous knowledge is superior. Like the Gregorian calendar is still inferior to the Indian calendar. Indian calendar is superior. The Lakshadweep islanders, they ended up with a method of navigation. For their limited purpose, this is perfectly good. And this can be made locally and they can use it. They don't need uh, the uh, other stuff. If they have a good calendar and they have this, they can manage. So, this story is just a prelude to another. The calculus too was stolen from India and western historians falsely claimed it was discovered by Newton and Leibniz. Now my point is that they did not properly understand calculus. Europeans did not properly understand calculus. They did not understand how to sum infinite series. Descartes wrote some nonsense about it. Newton had a peculiar theory of fluxions and so on. So ultimately, the West added a metaphysical fantasy of limits and formal real numbers. And it is my submission that that made calculus inferior. They declared it superior and people today don't know because they are all colonially educated. So the changed calculus together with this false history, bad philosophy was returned to us and is currently being taught in our schools and universities. I'm pretty sure it's being taught right here, engineering mathematics. <laughs> we forgot the original. So, how do we judge which is better? I am not saying that you just accept, blindly accept um, uh, indigenous knowledge. I mean, don't jump from one blind thing to another blind thing. Accept it critically. Whichever is better. But you need to make a critical comparison. That has never been done. If you try to do it, for example, in South Africa, they just go wild. Because they have never been part of a critical gaze of the colonized. And that is most important. So, we need to compare the indigenous calculus and the uh, colonial calculus and we must therefore discover the India we have forgotten.
just as the Lakshadweep Islanders needed to discover, need to discover still their traditional navigation which they have forgotten and compare it and maybe this is better you use that. If you have GPS, maybe GPS is better but if your battery fails, what will you do? <laughs> so, uh, the point is even after that it is not going to be a cakewalk, you need to fight a stronger foe. The West will oppose any challenge to its claim by piling on lies, all sorts of lies, look at the lies they told in South Africa and using strong arm tactics. So, in 2005, uh, 2016, my article on decolonized mathematics went viral and then it was censored by the South Africa editor after publication. All right, they did it there, but even in India, the scroll censored it, took it down. And the wire put it back, took it down and put it back. There's something wrong. What do they mean by saying editorial process were not followed? Oh, for one week, the editor was interacting. So, you just Google mathematics and censorship and you will get that. What you need to understand is, what is so dangerous about a new history and philosophy of mathematics that it needs to be censored? Can't they point out that there is something wrong? You can't. That's why it is so dangerous. And today our teachers cannot publicly defend the syllabus they teach. They refuse to defend it. And they are afraid of a critical comparison, all these chaps trained from Cambridge. Even more afraid than Alexander's army was a war elephant. So, we need to do that, but that's another story for another day. Okay, thanks.